I thought I'd step in first and just set the C. What we're doing, BC is one asset class of many others, and I'm probably being overly simplistic for most of our listeners. Can include things such as equities, fixed income or bonds, real estate, commodities, private equity, et cetera, et cetera. Within each asset class, you have folks who manage and invest the money. In VC, you have VC funds managed by GPs. In equities, like my background, you have asset managers who invest in stocks and bonds, et cetera, et cetera. What we're discussing today is how the investors, so think pension plans, Simon wealth funds, other retirement plans, basically those with the sums of large money that need to be invested, look across these asset classes, then within the managers and make decisions on where to invest. The long thing I'm saying that should be broken down simply is we're looking at the LP perspective. And I think that's very important. It's a little bit of a different perspective, but I think even for folks who want to become VCs, understanding through that lens can help you in your career. Expanding on what Austin just said there, one of the things we talked about in a past episode is how venture is a two-sided business. And everyone talks about being founder-friendly. There's a lot of great resources out there on how you can be a founder-friendly VC. But we felt that one thing that's not discussed quite as much is being LP-friendly. VC investors are sitting in that middle there. Like Austin said, they're taking money from wealth managers, retirement funds, other sort of large pools of capital. And then they're investing those assets on their behalf. So we're really excited to be bringing you this three-part mini-series with Kai. Today, we're going to be talking about getting to know your current or prospective LP. So whether you were an existing fund manager or you're out raising your first fund, we hope there'll be a ton of interesting stuff in there for you. The next episode after that is going to be talking about the investment criteria that LPs use when evaluating VCGPs. And the third one is going to be a little more tactical oriented on how to raise institutional LP capital and what it's like pitching to LPs. With that out of the way, I would like to introduce Kai. We usually start these episodes off with a little bit about your origin story. Would love it if you could spend a couple of minutes to introduce yourself to the listeners. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm Kai Grief. Officially graduated from Chicago Boost MBA program just last month. It's good to have that piece of paper in the mail. I'm currently experiencing the startup side of things. I'm working as the CFO of a digital healthcare startup called Motorscript. And I've been an Army Engineer Officer for the last nine years and I'm still going. Um, also a part-time BC investor, both through GBC Partners as well as an investment advisor for Draper Associates MIT Scout program. But, you know, my transition to ventures from food and coming from the LP world, I definitely left a, a very fantastic environment as an institutional LP, being able to invest in private equity and venture capital managers on behalf of a private pension in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I believe there's a, a perspective there that you and a lot of the listeners would be interested in hearing about today from that institutional LP lens of what a GP and venture needs to know to, to ultimately land those large commitments and get those fund sizes up. Sounds great, man. I think that's a great background. Curious about your path to where you're at today, too. If you could talk a little bit more about that before we jump into what it is you do day to day, because our listeners are really curious in how they get from where they perhaps are today to where you are, which is you know, obviously multidimensional. You know, it's always a strange path. You don't see any single path into venture capital, the startup world, it seems like. like. I first joined DMBA in that LP role as a fixed income analyst after I was a refugee 
from my very first role out of my undergrad degree and as a corporate auditor. Growing up and through high school, I've always been very entrepreneurial. Taught myself how to program and been making a few apps and things here and there, but I found a serious lack of fulfillment. And as an auditor in the corporate world, where I felt I was working against companies rather than for them. I knew I was interested in finance and evaluating how businesses work. And I'd already passed my CFA level one exam. I was determined to get more involved on the investment side of things. And starting a DMBA was, was definitely like drinking from a fire hose in that respect. Pretty much off the bat, I was trading these large $100 million plus commercial paper portfolios, doing a, a deep 30 to 40 page dive on direct debt investments for, for corporate debt. And what was really great about working at DMBA, besides the fact that it was a great team, fantastic people, very smart. They managed a significant amount of capital with only about a 24 person team. Gave me immediate responsibility out of the gate, working on a lot of different projects um, and opening me up to alternatives since a portion of my role was cross-trading with our private equity team. And that's where I first got exposed to that LP side of venture. I continued my CFA. more I worked and learned about VC, the more I loved it. Instead of being focused on large established investments or working for just one specific corporate, the bond being able to manage a portfolio of several early disruptive companies was incredibly appealing. Eventually, the senior analyst on that private equity team transitioned to a real estate fund. And I had the opportunity to step up and take his place. And so that's how I got there. We've had quite a bit of questions in the GVC community about CFA. A lot of people ask, oh, is it the right designation? Is it CAIA or CAIA exam? Any thoughts on sort of that before we jump into the, the topic to sure? Absolutely. I get this question all the time, especially from those coming from an institutional finance background, transitioning into venture private equity. The quick answer is that it doesn't hurt. Uh, it's tough for those like myself and these I speak with you know, to get rid of that hard-earned credentialing when they enter venture. Some funds will recognize this importance, but on the flip side, I've uh, spoken myself with several GPs that have never even heard, which is incredibly surprising after you spend five plus years of your life chasing after this thing. What you'll find is the skills that make for a successful venture capitalist, you know, they range wide. And they include both hard and soft skills, accounting, macroeconomics, early stage company financing skills, a lot of the competency of a managing team, how to evaluate that, how to incentivize a team, post dilution, structuring partnerships, et cetera. A lot of these insights can be gained from taking both CFA and the Kaya. But the Kaya itself doubles down on these concepts, effectively taking the alternatives portion of the CFA, which was easily my favorite, and diving in deep to cover things like Round financing, structuring deals, calculating fees, governance, et cetera, that you're going to find very applicable to VC right off the bat. Uh, if you already have the charters, either CFA and or Kaya, you can definitely make use of them and, and their credibility while you're in venture. But I would not likely recommend starting down that path if your immediate goal is to work in direct venture and you have immediate progress there, unless you have a clear rationale as to why a charter would help you get there. Something that's funny as is related to having a CFA or kind of charter other professional designation that you'll find a law in institutional finance is they come with their own sets of regulation and ethics, these codes of ethics that you have to abide by as a CFA charter holder, for example. I would go to the annual meetings of all my extra managers, which was easily one of the best parts of the job, by the way. And I remember one time, I won't say which fund, but I came to the meeting and I brought an intern that time with me. They're usually really nice. They're a nice hotel. They've got great food, a lot of great speakers from the companies. 
but we walk in the front gate and there is one $600 Yeti cooler, just a giant stack of them that they were handing out to every single person. And I had to make my four disappointed intern turn it down because he was also a CFA chamber holder. Right. And we can't accept gifts that could affect our judgment mm-hmm. and something that is uh, a rule of thumb at DNBA. So not even just Charles, but even at uh, DNBA, if you were not a charter holder, but you're on the investment team, you still couldn't accept gifts that were over $100 without reporting it. Um, and it was something that they were tracking actively. <laughs> this is actually one of the times that I learned that some venture funds have never even heard of a CFA. Yeah, I made a comment on it to one of the partners and he's like, what is that? <laughs> he's, he's like, you can't take these because of, of this designation. It's against our code of ethics. I'm guessing this is just one of their portfolio companies and they were like, hey, have a free cooler. Yeah. And they're usually labeled whatever they give you. This actually leads into it. It's also what made me even more interesting is that to get around this, the GPs that have been familiar with institutional LPs for a while, they pick their gifts very carefully, very customary to have a gift for everybody at an annual meeting, but they pick the gift that it could be usually one to $300. Then they label it with their fund logo. It serves two purposes. One, of course, branding of the fund. You get your nice Patagonia Sequoia sweater or something like that. But also, too, that technically devalues the item to a threshold that is acceptable by institutional LPs, considered uh, the lower market value for resale. That's interesting. <laughs> Isn't that strange? I feel like depending on the fund, it potentially increases its value. I know I have the same argument. It feels like it, for me, it definitely increases value, but that's not the way that the code of ethics sees it. That makes sense. Awesome, man. Thanks for expanding upon that. I think that's going to be really helpful for folks. Let's switch gears now. I want to hear about the LP process you have. How do you do due diligence across asset classes? Do you focus on specific asset classes? Are you really VC or private market focus? What does the team at DMBA look for? What's that day they look like? Yeah, definitely a big question. I'd say that most institutional LPs of, of the caliber that we're discussing are going to have an allocation to effectively every asset class from private and public equities all the way through private and public debt, international, domestic, um, multi-assets class, high-yield debt, things like that. And my attention, what I'm familiar with is a split, well, typically by asset class where you can really focus on what's important to an LP and that wider portfolio picture by knowing and understanding uh, how that asset class functions and you can better assess and judge you know, the managers that are going to lie underneath. Like I said, I started on the team as a face income analyst. We managed direct debt investments. So we were underwriting private and public direct debt in specific companies and doing a lot of diligence on the individual companies, their competitive landscape. We'd also allocate in the fixed income a lot of that capital to managers as well. A lot of passive strategies, including some active ones, through a lot of blue chip names that you'd recognize. On the private equity side, we typically would bucket everything inside venture capital, early, late stage, multi-stage growth, as well as middle market buyout, anything you know higher than that on the private side. We also group or functions for non-investment great debt, like mezzanine debt, structured capital, senior loans, things like that. And whenever we would you know, evaluate a new manager, which was most of my day-to-day, looking at these new managers, I'd get five to six 
uh, different emails a day with pitch decks from GPs trying to get placement and really get those fund sizes up. We had to take a lot of different considerations based on what sleeve of the portfolio they were going to fall underneath. Then we had a lot of sub allocations under that. It's really a big question, actually. I'm trying to think of the best way to dive into each piece. Maybe I can ask a follow-up because I'm so curious. How does the team interact? Is it thinking about strategic gas allocation? All right, we're going to have allocations to you know, debt. We're going to have X percent for investment grade. Insurance company is going to be different than a pension fund, one who is well-capitalized versus one who is particularly not. Those needs change. You can be more tactical. How does the private market team interact with the public market team, with the uh, real estate focused team? How does all the decision making happen to set the final strategic asset allocation for the next six or 12 months? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you asked the question in that way. It's actually quite a bit behind the scenes that we do specific to that thought process of trying to consider each portfolio, each allocation in context of the wider firm asset base. So in private equity. I guess the best place to start is that each asset class absolutely has predefined mid-range targets as well as ranges on the upper and lower end. That is going to be a percent of the overall portfolio we're trying to target for that asset class in the long term. This is, of course, what you'll know as a strategic asset allocation. It definitely does vary, but not often. This, but to actually vary that strategic asset allocation to change what our targets are is an active an investment committee, subcommittees, usually takes six months or more to even approve a change of the targets that you'd see on the strategic side. On the shorter side, we also had availability for tactical asset allocation. And this is interesting. So we would actually first do a wide economic analysis. What does our outlook look like over the next three to six months and we do this every quarter. We'd get input from everybody on the team, build out this report, and then bring this report to one room where all the portfolio managers sat. And we would actually bring what our recommendations were. Every portfolio manager for each different asset class would have a recommendation on what our tactical shift from the strategic percent for each asset class allocation, how much it should shift. Uh, and we would hear opinions. It'd be a very debative conversation in determining good rationales for why we should increase our allocation of private equity over the next six months. Or if we're even able to, for example, if it was private equity, let's say real estate wanted to have a higher target in the short term, there's going to have to be liquidity to pay that out if the portfolio doesn't have it. If they can't fund their own liquidity from distributions of their own managers in that asset class, then we have to start looking at the timeline for asset classes like private equity and see it we're going to be able to subsidize and slide that liquidity around to be able to fund some of those tactical targets. So this would be a long meeting that we would you know, ultimately come to a team-wide consensus at, at the decision-maker level of what the portfolio should look like in that short term. That's really interesting. We'd love if you could just talk a little more about how that diligence process varies across asset classes, across different managers. Absolutely. Yeah, JJ, some of the things that we actually care about in the private equity venture capital manager Versus what doesn't actually matter that much that maybe GPs are pushing too hard. See a lot of the same things there. On a high level, as somebody that did this diligence process in hiring both direct debt investments and manager debt investments, and then flipped over the alternative side, primarily focusing on private equity on the early side and the later side. The biggest differences that you're going to find in the diligence processes stems from 
positioning. The first thing you're going to have to do is it's not just an asset class. You have to understand how your, your LP, whoever you're prospecting to, you know, you're just speaking with my pension. If you're a non-IG debt manager, for example, let's say you're like a, a distressed debt manager, you have to understand where we're trying to place you. We're putting a label on you right off the bat before we even start thinking about your metrics, your performance, anything like that. We need to understand if we even have a need for more capital in, let's say, senior loans or based on the EBITDA of your underlying portfolio companies, you know, and that's positioning's incredibly important in non-IG debt since we would base these sub allocations on our own categorization, the way that we would label by a cross section of the uh, underlying EBITDA. So it's probably syndicated debt or high bonds, middle market loans, what are we talking okay. about versus seniority the debt. If there's not space, then it's wasted breath on the GP side <laughs> trying to talk to an LP that doesn't have right. room for you. And that's not going to be immediately obvious. And every LP is going to have different preferences there. But once you've actually been able to label a manager and it helps inform what you're going to be looking for, I don't have to be concerned about the fund structure quite as much when I'm looking at a non-IG debt manager on the venture capital side. If they're a traditional or evergreen, that can make a big difference on what our liquidity is going to look like. I'm not as concerned on liquidity in our non-IG debt portfolio, for example, especially not as concerned on liquidity if I'm looking at a fixed income manager, especially a lot of this public debt is where I can just pull money out with minimal cost to the portfolio. In fact, we use our fixed income asset class as a plug whenever possible to fund other asset classes in the short term. So the level of liquidity is one of the big things that will change across asset classes when we're looking at a manager and what the boats provide. For example, my pension just started 50 years ago making venture capital private equity allocations. Our investment committee will have to approve any new manager and they're so cautious about it. So if I'm trying to approve a private equity venture capital manager, I'm going to have to work quite a bit harder than I am when like a, a new non-IG debt manager and most definitely a fixed income manager. The standards are high to be able to break in that first door. But once you do break in, re-upping to subsequent funds, it's just a matter of continuing to perform for the most part. There's usually a spot in the commitment pipeline for strong performing managers in the portfolio. I'm curious, Kai, we've talked a lot about, we tell VCs that where to look for companies that might need capital. How do you look in the other direction? How do VCs get in front of you to raise funds? How do they get in front of LPs? Where are you looking for potential managers, et cetera? It's a good question. There's a plethora of different resources that will actually end up sourcing the managers that we commit to. But for the most part, there's not as much outbound as you might expect from the LP side. There's plenty of GPs that uh, you know would find me online, either through LinkedIn, through PitchBook, through whatever their resources are, through a networking event, and even to the point of cold emailing me or calling me if they found my content information. There's definitely a lot of inbound manager flow. But that doesn't mean that we're strictly inbound. There's still a very strong outbound process, especially since we have such high standards. It's an interesting dynamic, really, between large LPs and high-performing GPs where you both want to impress each other. You want to you know, have a good capital partner in one sense of the term or the other. And sometimes that power dynamic shifts from one side to the other. And you don't really know till you're halfway through a dinner with them. But because large institutional LPs are going to have high standards for a new manager allocation, they're going to be looking first and foremost, if they're outbound at all, 
at performance, something that's easily screenable. Many of these individuals may have come from the GP side themselves, but any just come from an institutional finance background where they're familiar with public market screening, be able to look at data in aggregate, and they trust a lot of those data resources like Cambridge, you know, screening through pitch book at fund performance. They're trying to find those that are going to be recognized and approved because the last thing they want to do is bring a manager that's not going to be approved by their respective subcommittees, investment committee, whoever else is in that decision-making process, because it's a significant amount of time that uh, NLP puts into that diligence process. You're talking about 30 page memos on the manager, several meetings over lunch, usually a year or more of a rapport building, the on-site visits for diligence, things like that. So they're very picky when it comes to pushing managers through and they can't be since they have a lot of inbound manager flow. That makes sense. So changing gears a little bit, the theme of today's discussion was getting to know your LPs. And going back to that phrase of VC being a two-sided industry, we'd love to just riff a little bit about that relationship. How can VCs be LP friendly, determining if the LP has allocation for a fund like yours, otherwise you're just wasting your time sort of thing. We'll have to just go down this path, see where it goes. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a few points there. And I realized that I had mentioned like investing clubs, quote unquote, which I don't know if it will come up or not organically later, but specific to this question, talking about the relationship of LPs and GPs, how to be more LP friendly. When you get to the institutional level, there are a lot of different things that you can do as a fund. Some are you know, a lot more impactful than others. Timing is a huge part of that. You have to understand that when you have this much capital, a billion dollars plus specifically meant for venture capital in their portfolio, they're planning out these allocations to managers far in advance, times year, year and a half before. And they're going to be trying to meet a specific allocation target what they're committing to managers based on their check size. And if you're not already talking to that manager the year before you want to have a commitment, you're not going to make it in, in most cases. You're going to want to start early, communicate often, keep your fund at their front of mind to be able to ensure that you have that open line of communication that they're thinking about you and that you're answering all of their questions because they're going to assume that however you interact with them, while you're working through the diligence process is how you're going to treat them after they're a committed LP. Another thing that maybe some younger venture investors, younger funds may not be aware of is a lot of these large institutional managers, especially those that hold uh, defined benefit pension plans, like one of the trusts that I managed capital for, these may be ERISA regulated plans, which comes with its own set of consequences that a VC fund needs to pay attention to, even at the structuring level. If you're acting as a manager and you want an ERISA plan LP to be able to commit, you need to take a couple steps to avoid the requirement of uh, fiduciary duty that comes with ERISA regulations in the U.S. It can be pretty easy for a venture fund to avoid these if they're familiar with what that looks like. I won't go into detail on ERISA plans, but effectively, you can avoid these in a couple easy ways. The first would be just ensuring that less than 25% of the fund's commitments as a GP are held by benefit plan investors, like an ERISA trust. You can have 24%, but you don't have 26% of my pension or those like my pension holding up that fund's commitment base. Otherwise, you'll be subject to these rules. Another way is operating as a venture capital operating company. 
which is the whole discussion entirely. But I think that understanding what these requirements are and if the LPs you're targeting are going to fall under these ERISA regulations is critical to understand as a GP. This also leads actually very well into some expectations. If you're investing with a, a large institutional LP, there's going to be a side letter included in nearly every commitment that you get from one of these. I don't remember a single manager that I committed to that we didn't include a side letter for one reason or another. It usually contains several provisions, but most of the time focused on communicating the actual ERISA status. If it was the, one of our ERISA trusts and ensuring that these will be uh, adhered to by the GP. You know, it's a, a way of building understanding between the LP and the GP of what our restrictions are as an LP and how you can help us follow those rules and what you need to do because there's a lot of decisions the GP can make that would affect that. I'm curious along those lines to just in general conflicts of interest that may come up. I'm thinking, especially in Europe, defined benefit plans. Now we have to integrate some ESG or sustainability type of, of framework. But what if the VC fund were to to invest in a company that's, we'll just say, outside of those guidelines or uh, not ESG friendly, for example? Is there any power struggle there? Does it the VC get to do what they want or is that understood at the outset or any examples or ways we could think about the conflicts of interest that might rise or anything like that? It's an interesting question. First off, I'm not aware of what changes that may have been made or other regulatory concerns like that we would have been held to as a bench. I don't know how those would have changed in the last two years, but back when I was, when I was working as an LP, there was no specific considerations for ESG. Then we were forced on a regulation basis to actually adhere to. That's not to say that it was a non-determining factor. There's a, you know, a million other considerations between the people that were, the beneficiaries were actually managing capital for any kind of headline risk and exposure for the management company itself and the managed arm of the private pension, particularly they've been in the news recently. Not as familiar with the, the requirements, especially relative to Europe for this pension. I don't think I'll be able to speak quite a bit to that in particular. Yeah, no, that's great. I was just more curious about what happens if there's conflicts. Let's do that. The fund invests in something that, I don't know, maybe I'll ask this. What level of transparency do you get in terms of what the fund is doing? Let's say the fund wants to invest in a company and maybe you guys are like, there's no way they should be doing that. Are you privy to any of that sort of information or do you have any sort of influence on the investment activities of the funds that you're invested in? Absolutely. So I'll start by saying that internally as an LP, we would track all the valuation, cash flows, inflows, everything that we had for every single portfolio company that all of our managers held. We would require a very high level of transparency. And sometimes our side letters would be what allows us to, to have access to information. Most of the time, though, GPs are, are very willing to, to share that information so we can track those company level details independently. I mean, those roll up into our risk analysis and the portfolio. Those roll up into all of our accounting functions, how we're valuing uh, the individual investments, which we'll double check. And it's another concern that I didn't actually bring up prior about venture capital versus other asset classes. Venture capital managers have the ability to determine their own valuations for individual portfolio companies at year end. And we need enough information about those companies to be able to see if those valuations really hold up or if they're trying to 
lend themselves to adverse incentive effectively, that they're trying to increase or otherwise adjust valuations of portfolio companies based on timing to improve their DPI or... It's really interesting because I'm so used to like the public space where you can value a company just name a tool. It's got prices and, and you could do it because it's all publicly available. I, I think it's just fascinating how in the private markets, it's not always that easy. And you have to have this level of trust that you're getting the accurate information and that you know what you see is right. Right. We put a lot of effort in, into ensuring that these valuations were accurate or at least to the best of our knowledge. Uh, we always go back and forth, especially year end with the venture fund to make sure we have the information required to, to make a determination on each proposed company's valuation. And it'd be a very lengthy process in checking these evaluations. It, it helps if the GP is using an independent auditor to calculate these valuations what they're delivering, which is fairly common. Most of our managers do that. It was somewhat of a red flag if they uh, were not using an independent party and just labeling anything that had been purchased, you know, more than a year ago without some kind of significant financial event that would warrant a visible valuation, like a financing round or otherwise. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. Now to close this thought out, would love to just get your perspective on the flip side of that. I imagine this is a lot less common, but let's say you're a rockstar GP. What do you think makes for a good relationship from that point of view? Or is it just more capital really? Yeah. Good question. On the topic of this LPGP relationship, uh, relationship means every, there's another piece of advice I would likely give to GPs. That relationship building aspect is incredibly important, you know, even so that uh, you may have managers at a pension find uh, some money to invest, make a commitment to this GP's other fund, a fund that's maybe a new strategy, a new line of funds, maybe even another asset class. It's like a goodwill builder. From the LP side, if that GP is credible enough and their performance has been strong enough that there's a relationship built based on that investment that wasn't the target investment, wasn't the target fund they were trying to commit to. But when the next fund comes around, you'll see that goodwill reciprocated with the acceptance of um, LP's commitment to the GP's flagship next rates. It's a really good way to start building a relationship, particularly if you have access to a lot of different fund strategies underneath your GP umbrella and want to be able to explore what it's like to have that LP in your LP base in the interim and see if you want to be able to admit them and their capital. Jump into the next part of that question of what you should look for in an LP as a GP. This is a hard question to answer because it really it goes like money uh, when it's that level. You're so busy anyway as an LP. We're managing like 30 different managers at one time. And that's just the ones that we're already allocated to. That doesn't include the inbound deal flow. The thought of taking one manager and really adding that much value to them outside of uh, network building is a little ominous. Contributing more capital, that's what our law of value will lie, is capital not just from that LP, but the networks that that LP has access to. A lot of these large LPs have institutional investors from a, a gamut of plans, whether that be pension or insurance or otherwise, that are participating on each other's subcommittees that are approving some of these investments. A lot of times you'll see a little bit of a sync between the managers that one pension is invested in, as well as their sister insurance company that's not actually affiliated legally, but some of their decision makers sent on each other's boards. They're able to do some group diligence 
if one manager is willing to jump in on a deal and make that leap, especially for a new manager allocation, you can bet that a couple others are going to do the same thing. You'll see a lot of the same managers getting not just a $10 million check from us, and then uh, you know, $15 million check from X insurance company, and then uh, they are operating on the liquidity of another large uh, institutional. That's uh, the, the, They'll hand them another large check. And that's when you see a lot of these blue chip top quartile funds increase uh, fund sizes exponentially, double, triple, even at the $200, $300 million level is getting access to these institutional networks. But I think looking for that in the managers, one of the most valuable things that you can gain from them at that level. Yeah, we had on one of our earlier episodes of the podcast, Joe Millen, who's the founder of a company called Aegisband. And what they're doing is really standardizing reporting between companies and VCs and effectively between GPs and LPs. And I'm curious what you think is the, the most challenging part of LP-GP relationships. Is it just getting information? Is it something else? In your perspective, where, where's the biggest area of opportunity for improvement in that relationship? What a good question. And really, points that I all wanted to hit on and I just completely forgot as our last question. I'm so glad you asked it like that. Really good question. That accounting function, that reporting function, this communication line between LPA GP on uh, the you know, fund status, capital contributions, distributions, regular recurring updates, that's incredibly important. Something that we talk about every day in the office are you know, either gripes about the way one manager reports this or the other, how we have to adjust with accounting every time that we get a quarterly valuation update from X manager. They seem like small things that you wouldn't really mind too much, but it adds up when you have several managers in a specific strategy, in a specific asset class. Whatever you can do as a GP to make that process more standardized, more streamlined, and how you communicate, the cadence at which you communicate, and what to be expected from those communications, that makes a world of difference for the LP. They'll absolutely want to continue working with you and give them one less reason to drop you on the next fund. If they know it's easy to work with you and understand what's going on in your portfolio, then as a GP, you're being as transparent as possible where appropriate on where your companies currently lie. And they have good rationales for any you know, adverse changes or adjustments, you know, evaluations or the otherwise. There are some managers that I've had to chase down for bad news. And then there are those that come to me with it and they offer before I even uh, heard about it. On the wider news, on TV or, or otherwise, the latter is very much preferred. Building trust and integrity with your GP as an LP is a primary tenant of, of that relationship and speaks a lot to the probability of re-upping on their next fund. I think that's a great place for us to stop because I think the next conversation. So Kai, really looking forward to continuing the mini series. Thanks for jumping on today. And I think our listeners are in for a wealth of knowledge as we continue this. All right. I appreciate you guys having me on to talk about it. I'm really excited to get into the juicy stuff next time on what what we're looking for because uh, I've got a lot of surprise responses from venture funds that I've worked with now on what I think that they should be communicating to LPs. Awesome. No, I hope you I'm looking forward to that, man. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter for more research at goingbc.com and consider giving us a gift by rating us and sharing the podcast with a friend wherever you're listening to this episode. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Mm-hmm.